0: Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It's another week and another
0: batch of opinions. Not as many as last week, but we did get a few big ones. I'll start us off with the first one, Sackett versus the EPA. This was a unanimous judgment, though not unanimous reasoning. The opinion was written by Justice Alito, joined by the chief, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett, holding that the Environmental Protection Agency abused its power in blocking the Sacketts from building their home on a piece of land near Priest Lake, Idaho. As you probably recall from our episode when this case was argued, the Sacketts bought a piece of property not far from Priest Lake and wanted to build a house on it. They got all the permits, but the federal government swooped in at the last minute and said that they can't build on the land because it contains navigable waters of the United States subject to federal regulation. Now, this was odd because the Sackett's lot did not contain anything which was anything like navigable waters. (laughs) But the government said that it had the power to regulate their land because their land had a significant nexus to navigable waters. Now, that phrase, that test, is from a solo concurrence by Justice Anthony Kennedy from a case called Rapanos. Specifically, the government said that there is a significant nexus between the Sackets land and a navigable waterway because their property borders a road, and across the road is a ditch, and that ditch feeds into a creek, and the creek flows through a <laughs> wetland, which borders the lake, and the lake is a navigable water.
1: GC, that uh, that seems like uh, some type of syllogism you'd see in uh. a class somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway, the Sackets have been fighting and losing this battle in the lower courts for 16 years. But today they wanted the Supreme Court. Justice Alito, writing for the majority, held that navigable waters are only those relatively permanent standing or continuously flowing bodies of water forming geographical features in ordinary language, streams, ocean, rivers, lakes, and some wetlands. Land can be regulated if it is adjacent to such bodies of water, which means that they have a continuous surface connection. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, joined the opinion in full but wrote a concurring opinion to say that the court should also have decided what the word navigable means. Looking to historical definitions, he found that navigable means those waters that can be used as highways of commerce. Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Sotomayor and Jackson, concurred in the judgment but wrote to say that they would take a broader view of what the word adjacent means. To them, it is just anything nearby and not things which are next to but still, she agreed that the government went too far here. Finally, Justice Kavanaugh concurred to further explore the difference between the words adjacent and adjoining. Hmm,
1: very interesting. Uh, Sackett was a PLF case, and it was a big day for uh, Pacific Legal Foundation because the next one, uh, Tyler versus Hennepin County, is a PLF case as well. In this case, it was unanimous opinion by Roberts, where the court held that when a government seizes and sells a taxpayer's property for unpaid taxes and keeps for itself any excess amount beyond the taxes owed, plus interest, penalties, fees, and that sort of thing, a taking has occurred in violation of the Fifth Amendment's Takings Clause. In this case, 94-year-old Geraldine Tyler had bought a one-bedroom condominium in Minneapolis, where she lived until she was forced to move to a senior living community in 2010. Unfortunately, no one paid the property taxes on her condo in Tyler's absence, so Hennepin County seized it and sold it for $40,000. Tyler owed the county approximately $15,000, but the county kept the excess $25,000 too. So Tyler brought a putative class action against the county alleging violations of the Fifth Amendment's Takings Clause and the Eighth Amendment's Excessive Fines Clause. The district court dismissed her suit for failure to state a claim and the Eighth Circuit affirmed. The Supreme Court reversed that finding, though, and said that Tyler has plausibly alleged a taking under the Fifth Amendment. And they also said because relief under the Takings Clause would fully remedy her harm, the court did not reach the Eighth Amendment excessive fines issue. Justice Gorsuch, though, joined by Justice Jackson, wrote separately to express his view on the excessive fines issue and he said that quote even a cursory review of the district court's excessive fines analysis reveals that it too contains mistakes future lower courts should not be quick to emulate
0: speaking of mistakes the chief justice made an error in his majority opinion he refers to the magna carta but you don't use the with magna carta because it's latin and latin names don't take articles
1: hmm, very interesting You know, the other interesting thing, GC, I think this is uh, the second uh, time we've seen Justice Jackson join Justice Gorsuch in a separate opinion. And so I've seen some scuttlebutt on Twitter and other social media about whether this could indicate uh, some type of uh, potential future uh, ideological alignment
0: (laughs) in some way. We shall see. Indeed. (laughs) All right. And last up, Dupre versus Younger, another unanimous decision, this time by Justice Barrett. The court held that you do not need to file a post-trial motion for judgment as a matter of law to preserve for appellate review a purely legal issue resolved at summary judgment. So as always, procedure can be technical and complicated, so let me break it down. On the eve of trial, parties can file motions for summary judgment, which argue that the court should grant judgment to one of the parties – uh, either because there are not facts in dispute and the undisputed facts show that one party deserves judgment or because there's a question of pure law that decides the case. If the court denies summary judgment, you go to trial. After trial, you can file a renewed motion for judgment as a matter of law. Now, until today, in some circuits, you couldn't appeal a particular issue unless you also filed that second motion. In other words, a merely a loss At summary, judgment didn't preserve that issue for appellate review. But today, the Supreme Court said that if the issue is purely a question of law, you don't need to file the renewed motion for judgment after trial in order to appeal it. And that's it for opinions today. Right after this, our interview with Chad Boudreau. Conservative women are problematic women. Why? Because we don't adhere to the agenda of the radical left. Every Thursday morning on the Problematic Women Podcast, Kristen Eikammer, Lauren Evans, and me, Virginia Allen, are joined by other conservative women to break down the big issues and news you care about. Whether you're interested in hot takes and conversations on pop culture or what Congress is up to, Problematic Women has you covered. We sort through the news to keep you up to date on the issues that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning, that is, problematic women. Find Problematic Women wherever you like to listen to podcasts and follow the show on Instagram. We are joined today by Chad Boudreau, Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer at Huntington Ingalls Industries, which is the nation's largest military shipbuilding company. In addition to a fascinating legal career, I am excited to chat with Chad today about his legal thriller novel, Scavenger Hunt. Chad, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Chad, what first sparked your interest in the world of law?
2: Well, you know, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, and I just really wasn't good at science or math, and so I think uh, just practically speaking, I I wanted to do something that... um, was 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 big for my at least for my family I I was the first to graduate college and so that just kinda led me towards the law I would think I was good at uh, debating at an early age so uh, that's the the non sexy answer I I tell people I tell people now though that ask me uh, why should they get in the law if they have questions about it that it really is an industry and a profession where at an early age people can do big things and be involved in some, some um, I think, pretty momentous decision making. Mm-hmm. And uh, that certainly was my, was the, was my experience.
0: So w- right after law school, you started as an associate at Germer Gertz. What sort of things did you do there?
2: Yeah, so uh, Germer is a, a, a very, um, uh, I think, aggressive litigation firm in Texas. I, I had really started at the biggest law firm at the time in Austin. And the people that I had interviewed with while I was taking the bar exam, left to go and start their own firm. And so when I, I got the care package that a lot of us get when we're <laughs> studying for the bar exam, and I wanted to thank somebody for that, and I called. I remember calling the firm and saying, "Hey, I want to talk to um, to this particular individual." And he no longer worked there, and and I, I was uh, my world had been turned upside down for a bit. And then uh, they made me an offer to be the only associate there, at least for a limited time. And I took it, and it was one of the I guess many risks that I took you know in my in my career, and it certainly paid off hmm.
0: so uh, you practiced there for a few years and then made a pretty big change in September of two thousand and one. You joined the, the DOJ civil division during doing national security work. What prompted that change?
2: At some point after three years of of litigating cases in Austin, I had dreams of going to D.C. and working for, for the main justice department in some capacity. And I'd done some interviews uh, with several people, uh, several people, I think a few of which you've had on this on this podcast. And uh, during that period, I uh, was in a waiting period for, I guess, a few months. And I got the call from from uh, John Ashcroft's group uh, on September 10th in, in Austin at really late at night and uh, was, was preparing my remarks to, to leave my firm the next morning when I learned of the terrorist attack. So that's, that's the way that, hmm. that came about.
0: Did, um, did the September 11th attacks uh, change the nature of the position you were taking or your plan uh, with respect to your career at DOJ?
2: Absolutely, so I was being hired to be in the torts branch of the civil division. I was going to be uh, uh, a line lawyer there and uh, was looking looking forward to it when i joined when I finally got to d c several weeks after the attacks, we were in a different period and DOJ was right in the center of not only responding to the Attacks, but preparing for what we thought might be uh, future attacks, and then also looking back and trying to figure out—you know—not only from uh, a legal standpoint, but also from uh, a victims' compensation standpoint—what we needed to do. So I was thrust right into the middle of that, and the portfolio that I had anticipated having, let's say, in the summer um, of of two thousand and eleven, had changed by the time I got to Maine Justice. Hmm.
0: What sort of things did you work on during that time
2: there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of civil litigation that was being brought by victims' families or uh, certain families against uh, countries of interest there but primarily my it was the victims' compensation fund is is the one I talk about you know we at the time uh, had never had a, a taxpayer funded uh, compensation program like the one that was created right after 9-11 it was a creature of the uh, Congress and handed to uh, DOJ to compensate uh, victims that had survived and family members of victims who had perished in the attacks and it was a one-of-a-kind one administrative program my first day on the job really my first meeting on the job third floor main justice building in the Civil Division was with the survivors of several survivors from 9/11 from from New York, and uh, a meeting that was supposed to last for probably 30 minutes lasted for more than three hours because wow. it needed to. Uh, there was just a lot of a lot that needed to be said and a lot that needed to be discussed.
0: So you eventually, during this time, won uh, the department's special commendation for outstanding service. Um, was that involved was that with respect to this work uh, your uh, anti-terrorism work uh, tell us about that
2: right so a, lo- a lot of times the department will create certain units that are focused on particular projects and I think this was one of those a task force put together by many people up and down the line um, within the department and and we had Taken up we had taken a position that we were going to compensate victims' families, but at the same time, there were certain litigation that needed to be fought, and um, it was it was the jurisprudence was was not necessarily new, but it was definitely as applied new to us, and so there was a lot of challenges on on what what are some of the things that we need to be defending? What are our positions going to be in court? And then there was also a prosecutorial side to that as well. I think, um, you know, those of us that were involved in that task force were, you know, boots on the ground, making decisions that really had never had to be made before. And so it was it was a very interesting time.
0: Hmm. So you went on to become uh, counsel to the associate attorney general. Who was the AAG at that time? And what did you do for him or her?
2: The um, esteemed um, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division when I was there was Robert McCallum, and Robert was an amazing leader who um, was very close to President Bush. They had gone to, to school together, and so we had a very powerful civil division at the time. He uh, went on to become the uh, Associate Attorney General and then uh, Ambassador to Australia, But um, and but he was he was succeeded by another person who uh, your listeners will be familiar with, Peter Keisler. And Peter also was just an amazing leader, an amazing lawyer. And so we were well served by the, when I was in that department with some of the, the best lawyers uh, and leaders that, um, that we could have had. It was, it was a very special time.
0: Another promotion came, senior counsel to the deputy AG. Uh, what did you do in that position?
2: So that position evolved very quickly. I was the last hire, I think, in government by Larry Thompson, who was the deputy attorney general. He went on to become, I believe, general counsel of PepsiCo. And uh, his replacement was Jim Comey. And Jim is um, I I know your uh, listeners will be familiar with Jim. He went on to become the FBI director but I was not known by hardly anyone in that office. I had I had worked on a special project uh, related to the nine eleven commission, and the person who ran that gave me a recommendation to be in the deputy's office, and so it was it was a great opportunity for me. And uh, but when I got there, nobody really knew what to do with me, <laughs> and uh, they handed me all these pardon applications. And the interesting thing is, the deputy attorney general actually adjudicates along with the pardon attorney all the executive pardons. And so all the recommendations that go to the president are supposed to go through that office. Obviously there's mm-hmm. been controversies in the past where they've sidestepped that, but uh, but that's the way the process works. And I inherited stacks and stacks of of pardons. You can imagine the deputy's office being embroiled in post 9-11 uh, terrorism related activities on the criminal front, on the civil front, and then also that was just after Enron. And so the um, the pardon applications were not the highest priority. And I just started I, I think I just started going through them can almost almost like it with an accountant's fervor, you know, and uh, adjudicating those. And that caught the attention of our chief of staff at the time. And uh, and he very graciously he had been uh, he had worked at the FBI, had been the chief of staff at the FBI. He very graciously gave me the FBI uh, policy portfolio, and uh, that really mm-hmm. changed my my career because that was a whole new world of excitement and uh, high stakes, uh, legal and um, and somewhat policy uh, related work.
0: What uh, what does it mean to have the FBI uh, policy portfolio?
2: Well, so you imagine the FBI being largely a criminal, uh, you know, our police, federal police, and and now and that's basically domestic criminal type issues. And then now, all of a sudden, they have a brand new national security. Not it wasn't new, but a more enhanced national security priority, mm-hmm. and the uh, the give and take that that that. And some of this you'll see um, in in my book that we'll talk about, I, I guess, in the in the coming minutes. But but you you really have this uh, tension that's created there. That creates a lot of new policies when the, the Department of Homeland Security came about and was established in 2003 and then really in earnest the the months after that getting stood up there was often battles of jurisdiction between the bureau and DHS and uh, where overlapping priorities uh, led to jurisdictional disputes and those had to be adjudicated and so th- there was a lot of that going on and then and then just cases that were involved uh, policy related to terrorism and others that would come through the bureau all of that fell uh, with within the deputy 's office because they don 't often like to believe this, uh, and I understand why but the bureau doesn 't like to report to mother to mother uh, justice you know unless there 's like a big problem or they need money but uh, but we had a very good working relationship between the Bureau and the and the deputy's office at the time. So right in the middle of all that.
0: So you ended up uh, joining Homeland Security as deputy chief of staff. What prompted that change and what was that experience like?
2: Michael Chertoff had left the Department of Justice as the assistant attorney general of the criminal division to become a, just, a, a judge on the Third Circuit. And uh, President Bush, when uh, Ridge left, or was, or was contemplating leaving, uh, appointed uh, Michael to be, the, um, t- to be the next Homeland Security Secretary. And uh, John Wood, who I know you've had on this, this program in, in, a, in the past, became the chief of staff. And he and, and um, Chertoff asked me to come over to be the deputy. And it was just a brand new. It wasn't a legal job per se. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just uh, 200,000 people, uh, 22 component agencies shoved underneath, uh, you know, this new agency. And it was something that was a priority for not only the administration, but for our country. And it was something that I wanted to be a part of.
0: Mm So after your government service, uh, you joined Baker Bots and created their Global Security and Corporate Risk Counseling Group. What does that mean, and what did you do?
2: Right. So many of the partners there probably still have that same question. <laughs> so uh, what, what I did was I had gone – I had been a trial lawyer in my, my DNA. I think I'm a trial lawyer, and, and I had um, litigated a lot of cases at an early age. And I wanted to do something different because I had kids at this time. I did not want uh, plaintiff lawyers and state court judges, particularly back in Texas, if that's where I was going to move, you know, dictate my schedule and prevent me from coaching (laughs) T-ball. So that was my mindset at the time. And uh, I really went back home to Texas to try to leverage my homeland and national security expertise now and it wasn't a good fit. There, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities okay. at the time for my background. And Baker Botts, which I've always thought being, was the gold standard in Texas for, for law firms, was um, you know had had that opportunity for me in the DC office. And you know they had Secretary Baker there. They had a lot of established um, litigators but also connections to, to DC. And so uh, I went in and I, I tried to get my feet um, underneath me, just like all new lawyers transitioning from government to the private sector do, and uh, ultimately created a, a practice group there that really just counseled companies on um, a great many things, but compliance-related issues, many homeland security and national security issues in the compliance space. Mm-hmm. We ultimately ended up hiring um, Fran Townsend, who had been, Uh, George Bush's uh, Homeland Security Advisor, and uh, once Fran Townsend came on board, I moved more into almost a chief of staff role once again, where we were working together as a team to really provide clients with uh, a national security-related compliance um, and crisis management uh, service that was uh, very beneficial for for several years.
0: So what made you decide to move in-house at Huntington Ingalls?
2: Well, one of the things that uh, was great about Fran is that she took uh, our business to a different level. The, the The bad thing was is that she was in high demand, and <laughs> she ended up leaving the firm to go work for McAndrews and Forbes. And at the t- time, I had, uh, you know, I had a great support from the Baker Botts family, and I always appreciate their uh, their um, giving me opportunities at their firm uh, but I really had a choice to make Did I want to try to build really a new practice from the bottom up because I couldn't command her star power um, and the the fees that she was able to bring and and try to to re-energize a practice or try something new and and I started talking to some friends and former colleagues and I told them I might want to try in house and once the my name got out there it didn't take long and uh, the opportunity presented.
0: So, what is your day to day like as the chief legal officer?
2: Well, it's it's not unlike being uh, deputy chief of staff for DHS. You put a list together of ten things you hope to get accomplished, and you're lucky to get one of those <laughs> accomplished. It's it's fast and furious and a lot of fun. We've we've built an uh, I think an amazing team here at um, at this company, and our mission here is bigger than ourselves. We. We build uh, things and provide services for heroes uh, that defend our nation. And uh, as a part of that, we are, you know, defenders of freedom and promoters of peace. And we really believe that our mission is is great. And so we have an esprit de corps here where it is much like government, uh, the way I remember things in government. And so Mm. um, it's a lot of fun. I can tell you that.
0: Excellent. So besides your day job, uh, you are also a novelist. But before I jump into the book, Scavenger Hunt, I I wanted to go back to your time at DOJ, specifically your time – you you spent some time declassifying old documents from the Reagan administration. There's a connection there to your book. Can you talk about that?
2: Right. So we – some of your listeners will know, maybe most will know that – NARA is, you know, the National uh, Archives. Um, They require the government, the executive branch, to uh, declassify documents over periods of time. And we had just found ourselves in a period where, really, I think it might have been the penultimate tranche needed to be declassified for for President Reagan. And so can you imagine going from main justice, you know, walking over to a building on New York Avenue there in D.C. and going up into a stuffy room and there's a bunch of boxes and each box is categorized by, by subject matter. And th- during the the Reagan administration, so you had just say no, you had the line item veto uh, debate that was going on, all of the different things uh, that Reagan dealt with. Um, and one of those was... Um, you know his speech at the brandenburg gate mm. and that's that's the, the most exciting story of all I'm just kind of walking through that but we had a team of lawyers there that were there to categorize and declassify and uh, we had a lot of fun and learned a lot just by going through those documents it was a very historic period obviously uh, particularly with the cold war
0: now rumor has it also that you discovered two little known secrets about the doj's headquarters while you were there uh, can you let us in on those?
2: Sure, so I'm curious by nature, and I couldn't understand why there were only seven floors on the elevator at Maine Justice, but there appeared to be eight floors in the building, and I kept asking a bunch of people about that, and few, if any, could tell me the answer. Finally, I found an institutionalist there who told me that it used to be the FBI ballistics lab, and if I could find a way up there, I should take take advantage. I eventually got a custodian who took me up there. We literally had a flashlight, and and he had a great amount of knowledge about about the floor, and walked around. and There's hanging chains, and you know there's uh, you know it's it's like an old uh, old supply room now, but but I, I walked around uh, the entire floor almost like a disjointed Olympic track and just saw all these things from yesteryear and then my mind just started going and <laughs> that was really the the that was really the trigger that started me um you know writing writing fiction mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about that but then the book was uh the book was picked up for publication it was almost to print and I had gone to a an event in DC this was back in April I believe of this year or last year rather and um And there were uh, three attorneys generals, uh, former attorneys generals at this event, and um, one of them I was speaking to, and um, he told me, well, not only is there, you know, a hidden eighth floor, but there's a hidden room above the attorney general suite, and it's, uh, rumor has it that it's uh, where RFK would take Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) And uh, of course, my eyes lit up. I asked more questions. And then all of a sudden, another former attorney general showed up and he said, oh, yeah, that's. <laughs> and let me tell you what else. Uh, you know, RFK's kids would come in with BB guns and fire shots in that room. And you can still see in the doors in the attorney general's conference room, which used to be RFK's office, those uh, indentations. And so I I got finished with the event, I ran home, and I said, stop the press. I got, I've got another chapter to write. Uh, so all of that, uh, particularly the last piece that I described, you can find in chapter two of the book.
0: So how did uh, the, the secret rooms and declassifying documents, uh, how do they fit into the book? Can you give us an overview?
2: Yeah, they're part of the story. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to write an entertaining story, and that's first and foremost as a novelist, what you have to do. If I don't grab the reader by page one and take them all the way to the end, I've failed. And so, my book is not a national security book; it's not a legal book per se. Although you would, you're gonna, you're gonna hopefully learn some things along the way. And um, but I also wanted to highlight the the main justice building there on Ninth and Penn because a lot of people pay. Attention to the FBI building across the street, but Maine Justice is an amazing building, and most people have not been inside of it, and they can 't go inside of it because you know there's so much security around it it 's not open to the public and so i I really went about wanting to describe that and and ultimately a lot of that gets cut at the end because it it takes away from the the movement of the story but but there's still a lot left in there. So I, I really want to put my reader in the main justice building, in those rooms that I talked about, and, um, and hopefully I've, I've achieved that.
0: What is the, uh, the story of the book?
2: So the story is about uh, the protagonist, Blake Hudson, who is a Supreme Court clerk who's, who's in his late 20s, who joins the attorney general's office in a capacity as a counselor. And he is thrust into a, uh, a world where, uh, not unlike what we saw post-9-11, you, the, the next terrorist attack is, is imminent. And the, um, there's a group that's created that is put together clandestinely to uh, usurp uh, all the bureaucracy, uh, all the safeguards, and um, and Blake is brought in as the legal counselor to that with a group that involves NSA, DOD, uh, NS, well, uh, uh, Delta Force more specifically on the DOD side and CIA, and, and it's a group that you could never put together in the real world, uh, but they're all a part of this Operation Scavenger Hunt, and their their role is to go prevent terrorist attacks from happen, happening happening by overcoming all the bureaucratic uh, safeguards, and so that puts Blake in a, a very precarious position because he wants to do right by the law in his country, and so um, what I've done is I've created these hopefully amazing characters, put them in this box that is almost impossible to to crawl out of, and you have to see how they respond. Hmm. And uh, along the way, I, I didn't have any uh, I didn't have any intent to 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 share my politics or to have any subtle undertones. But I guess if there is one thing, I did want to, I did want the reader to understand that the real world uh, of, of legal, uh, of the law and national security is not as binary as everybody wants you to believe. It's, it's uh, everybody falls on a spectrum. We have people that are that lean more towards privacy, those that lean more towards national security. Most of us want both. And uh, but when you put somebody in a situation where uh, there is imminent danger, like there is in this book, you really see behaviors in a way that is is more realistic than the the way the pundits spin it on television or on the or on the
0: Congress floor. Interesting. So it sounds to me like there's a bit of a tension in the book between uh, sort of the bureaucratic procedures and what the characters feel is sort of the imminent action that must be taken to prevent an attack.
2: Exactly right. So and that's that's the thread throughout the book and that's again I hope real-life situations that you know some more eminent than others, but in this particular uh, Book without spoiling, you know the story there's a constant tension From Blake who wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to break the law He doesn't want to lose his legal license. He doesn't want to be put in jail but at the same time there are things about to happen where if the boxes are all checked, is not going to be thwarted, and so it really is kind of. A, I, I hope it's an eye opener for for those that believe they've got it all figured out. Hmm. You know, we um, you talked about what we did earlier. There's a lot of a lot of things that we saw as related to um, you know terrorism jurisprudence being created. I know that's of great interest to your listeners. I know many of them are were uh, you know foot soldiers in that in that. Um, but, you know, you have Article Three judges that for the large, for the most part, were making terrorism jurisprudence based on habeas petitions. And that's that's not the real world. That's not that's not the way things work. So
0: Fascinating. Well, our listeners can find a link to your book in the show notes. Um, in the meantime, Chad, are there any more novels in the works?
2: Uh, yes, there are. So I actually have one that was picked up for publication uh, last week. And uh, it's not a sequel to Scavenger Hunt, but it's uh, it's a thriller, and um, it's it's one of those where you're going to have to hold on <laughs> tightly uh, to make it through. And then uh, I did my research did my research over the break for uh, the next Scavenger series. There's been a a lot of folks that were my advance readers and now readers now that the book is published who've, who have who um, have asked me to to consider writing more in that line because they like the they like the story. They like the characters. So Fascinating. For
0: yeah. Well, Chad, I wanted to thank you so much for the time you spent with us uh, and ask you one final question before you go. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm going to – I'm not going to answer this question directly. Actually, I am, but I, I just want to – I've thought about it um, because this is a, a question that I, I anticipated. Would come, but my favorite justice of all time is Clarence Thomas, and I I actually think he's one of the greatest Americans um, living right now. He's just uh, an amazing man. Uh, I know that there are others. um, I'm less interested in jurisprudential questions and more uh, interested in what drove people to make decisions. So Mm -hmm. I would, I would love to talk to Justice Harlan about his soul descent in Plessy. I would Mm -hmm. love to talk to Justice Story about what it. Was like to be 32 years old on the court, and uh, but then, but then I, I really would have liked, and I actually had the opportunity to to have a conversation at a holiday party with Justice Scalia before he died, and he's also one of my heroes, and I would love to ask him though. Um, some questions about his favorite restaurant, AV, that went out of business, because that's actually something that I'm going to put in a future <laughs> book. And I uh, actually had the scene in mind, and I was, I was thinking, I wonder how Justice Scalia would have responded to this particular uh, discussion that was being had. I know that's a dorky way to approach that question, but it's the honest answer.
0: And <laughs> That's all we can ask for. Chad, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks
2: so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: All right, GC, are you ready for trivia today? You know it. All right. Well, as we come to the end of the court's terms, I know we all expect blockbuster decisions to come out in May and June of each year. So today, I thought we could talk about important yet underrated end-of-the-term decisions. Are you ready? Yes, indeed. All right. First up, let's start with something as American as apple pie and the 4th of July, baseball.
0: Uh, but as a side note, how do you feel about apple pie, GC? Big on apple pie, not big on baseball.
1: Well, I'm sure we're both big on the 4th of July, so at least we can uh, <laughs> can agree on that. I hate agreeing um,
0: with you about anything, Zach, but I have to confess.
1: Yeah, yeah th- this is a good uh, subject to agree on here. Uh, all right, well, let's talk baseball uh, for a second. Now, as you may know, uh, Major League Baseball is the only professional sports league to enjoy an exemption from U.S. antitrust laws. This exemption has been challenged in courts over the years, but so far these challenges by and large have not been successful. However, one of these challenges, while not successful, did pave the way for free agency in baseball. What was this 1972 court case? That I think was Flood versus Kuhn. Yeah, that's exactly right, and the backstory to this case is fascinating. Uh, Curtis Flood played 15 years in the MLB. He was a three-time All-Star. He won the Gold Gloves seven consecutive seasons and even won two World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals. Unfortunately, at the end of the 1969 season, though, the Cardinals traded him to the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, at that time, players essentially had to play for the team that initially drafted them and do what and go where that team wanted. There was no free agency as it currently exists. Flood, though, he didn't want to go to the Philadelphia Phillies, so he brought a lawsuit challenging uh, this entire arrangement. His case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and even though he lost at the court, the MLB and the MLB players later contractually agreed to do away with this system and eventually implemented free agency as we know it today.
0: Fascinating.
1: Now, GC, I am curious. Uh, you just said you don't like baseball, so how would you know the answer uh, to, <laughs> to, to this trivia question?
0: Well, I don't like baseball, but I do like law.
1: Oh, That's fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I hope that's the case since you're a lawyer. <laughs> uh, well, very interesting. All right, let's move on. Next up, let's talk about the switch in time that saved nine. Now, we all know the case of West Coast Hotel versus Parish, which many commentators view as when that switch in time happened. Uh, but later, in 1937, in May of that year, the Supreme Court issued two opinions that upheld the constitutionality of the Social Security Act of 1935. GC, can you tell me one of those two cases?
0: Yeah, there's. I know one is halvering. I'm, I'm not actually sure about the second
1: yeah, that's right. Uh, one case was Helvering versus Davis, and the other case was Stewart Machine Company versus Davis. Now, both of these decisions were written by Justice Benjamin Cardozo, and both cases ultimately upheld the Social Security Act as a proper use of Congress's spending power. All right, let's move on to the movies. GC, what's your favorite movie?
0: Um, wow, let me think. <laughs>
1: Uh, This wasn't supposed to be a curveball for you. (laughs)
0: Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I don't, I have to think about that, Zach. I don't think we have time to let me sit here and ponder my favorite movie. So go go ahead and and hit me with your trivia question.
1: All right. Now that one was not designed to stump you, uh, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, But that wasn't actually the trivia question. Uh, So here's our movie related trivia for the day. In 1948, the Supreme Court issued an opinion finding that many Hollywood studios at the time had violated the United States antitrust laws. What was this case?
0: That's interesting. I don't know.
1: Well, That's okay. That's reasonable. Like I said, this is underrated yet important uh, Supreme Court cases. The case was United States versus Paramount. Now, at the time, major studios had exclusive contracts with actors and actresses, they owned theaters, and they required independent theaters to buy blocks of their movies without having an opportunity to first screen them. In his opinion, in this case, Justice William O. Douglas struck down the block booking system and recommended the breakup of the theater monopolies. But he left it to the lower courts to implement uh, this breakup. Ultimately, instead of fighting in the lower federal courts, Many studios simply sold their theaters and instead chose to focus on a new entertainment medium, television. Uh, This decision was the culmination of a decades-long fight with the U.S. Justice Department, and it played a major impact on shaping the entertainment landscape for some time.
0: This kind of reminds me of the movie Singing in the Rain, where you you get sort of an inside look into how studios used to operate.
1: Are you going to belt out a, a few show tunes for us here, GC?
0: Our audience would desert in droves.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, let's end with a well-known case, uh, and I think you'll have no problem getting this one. Uh, this case was decided on May seventeenth, nineteen fifty-four, and in fact, it overturned a previous infamous case that the court had decided on May eighteenth, in eighteen ninety-six. What was this case that ended? the separate but equal
0: status in public education? Ah, you know perfectly well that I know the answer to this question. It is Brown v. Board. And of course, it overturned Plessy. Well, it didn't overturn Plessy. Technically, it only held that Plessy uh, was not applicable to public schools, but the writing was on the wall.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's very interesting. They were decided almost 58 years apart to the day. Well, well done in trivia today, GC.
0: Thank you, Zach. Thank you.
1: Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
1: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.